Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate it very much. This week, I'm interviewing Kim Kid Curry. Now, this is a an amazing, amazing conversation. You know, I say Kim Kid Curry. That kid is in quotation marks because uh, Kim Curry was uh, a a DJ for a great many years. Started out uh, in Colorado, just babysitting a radio station. We'll talk about what that means um, for the church services on Sunday. Made it all the way up to. You know, the, the hot battles in Miami between top 40 radio stations and some of the biggest radio stations in the country, between Miami and Washington, D.C. and Baltimore. Spent some time in Texas. Just an amazing, amazing career in radio as uh, as one of really the, the biggest radio DJs out there. Uh, definitely in the, uh, in the 80s and 90s, uh, a huge, huge force to be reckoned with when it came to uh, to to DJ Kid Curry. So I think you're going to enjoy that part of the story about how he became a, you know, a top DJ, uh, how he managed radio stations and made them, you know, huge, how he kind of mingled with some of the the biggest stars of the day between Casey and the Sunshine Band in the early days to um, Diddy later on and Tupac and, and all of these people. He did get out of radio in uh, in the early 2000s, uh, not before some, some other amazing conversations. We're going to talk about how in the 80s, the president of the United States, Ronald Reagan, was listening to his, uh, to his show and, uh, and the, the picture framer in the White House uh, kind of, it's an interesting story. I'm not even going to go into it because I want you to listen to it. And, uh, and it kind of goes into a story about his next phase because he actually went to the White House and had an, an issue there, uh, which he'll tell you. But what happens is in 2005, uh, Kim was diagnosed with MS, multiple sclerosis. And we're going to talk about that journey he's been on since then. You know, he he's had a time where he was kind of rapidly, um, you know, having issues. He was he was fading fast when it comes to his abilities. MS is is something that kind of takes away a lot of your your functions there between walking and movement, sometimes speech, all kinds of different things. Uh, I definitely am not an expert there, so so I'm not going to go too much into that. He'll he'll talk a little bit about it, but. Uh, he 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 got on the right regimen. He is doing well now. He is in a wheelchair, and uh, we're going to talk about kind of that that transition because he's somebody who has not always been disabled. We've talked to a lot of people on this podcast about disability and disability awareness. Everything from people who've been born with a disability or you know had it very early in life, all the way up to middle, uh, I guess, kind of teenager area and then obviously with with Kim Curry he had an entire huge career and then this happened so I think it was interesting to hear from him about kind of just transitioning in life from you know being the kind of the the who's who in in the world to having to take a step back and reevaluate and and 
kind of it was interesting to talk to him about how him and his wife kind of switched roles. He was out there kind of being the rock star almost fi- almost literally um, to his wife being the rock star a little bit more figuratively when it comes to uh, to real estate and, and just doing amazing things there. This is just a, an awesome conversation. So there's there's two parts of it. His time as a DJ. We're going to talk about his uh, disability and and adapting to that. We're going to talk about you know the issues with disability in the United States with you know assistance and what it'll pay for and what it won't and accessibility. We've talked about those type of things before. We're going to get into that too. And then the third part of this conversation, if these two topics are not amazing enough already, which they certainly are, then we're going to talk about him writing several books, one being a memoir, another one being about uh, the Fairness Doctrine, which, of course, as a radio person, we've talked to somebody in the past about this, but it was kind of a, a law that was back you know, back in the 80s that meant, hey, if you're going to have people on your radio station, you're going to have people on your uh, TV station, and they're going to kind of give their views, you've got to have somebody on with opposing views to talk about it and balance it out so people are hearing both sides of the argument. In the 80s, that all went away. So, of course, that's how we got kind of the opinion news cycles that we have now. Uh, he's going to talk, you know, namely about Rush Limbaugh and how, you know, his... His radio show started after that. You know, he was able to say whatever he wanted to say, whether you agree with it or whether you don't. Um, there really wasn't a lot of pushback there. He is of the thought that that is not uh, that's not a, a great thing. Uh, that we need the fairness doctrine back. He wrote a book about it. He actually wrote two books about it. One a more factual area, and one um, that he he you know made up the story around it, which both seem really amazing. Um, this really means a lot to him in, in two ways. One, obviously, he was a DJ, so he's, he has experience in, in that world. And then two, we heard about how it affected his mom in a small town about this this local radio station has changed to nothing but kind of talk radio, opinion radio, and when a huge natural disaster, well, I guess it wasn't natural, but a huge disaster, a fire happened, nobody was on the radio being able to explain to this town what the world was going on because it had been taken over by just syndicated opinion talk. So that kind of was an eye-opening thing to me about how this change truly affected his mom. It truly affected a town, and it's affected a lot of small towns out there. Uh, So, so much we're unpacking this week such an awesome conversation this is a longer conversation um so it it needed a longer intro but i think you're really really gonna enjoy this one here is my interview with kim curry i'm here today with kim curry mr curry how are you hi jackson how are you today sir i'm good appreciate you joining me if you would just introduce yourself it's my pleasure i'm uh, kim curry uh live out here in colorado in a, a place called severance I am a horse rancher now. We have a horse property out here. I'm a uh, 33-year radio broadcaster. I got started in radio in 1972, a job that my father got me involved in because he was in broadcasting at the time. Uh, For 33 years, I traveled around the country uh, in towns like Knoxville, Tennessee, San Antonio, Texas, Washington, D.C., Baltimore. Uh, In 25 of the 33 years, I was in Miami, Florida. When I first got there, I was the youngest kid there. 
in the 1970s, around 1976. And then by around 1996, uh, 20 years later, I was one of the older guys uh, on the top 40 rhythmic radio dial in Miami. Uh, eventually, I became the program director of that radio station. And uh, not because of anything more than just being able to direct the same staff that was there when I got hired. I just changed a few mindsets and uh, the radio station had the best success in its history. And then in 2005, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Um, the condition was was pretty rampant at the time. It forced me to leave the industry. Uh, for eight years, MS beat me up. Uh, I was scared, thought I was going to die almost every day. Something else was falling apart. And then my doctor changed my medicine and insisted that I take large uh, amounts of vitamin D because my doctor, my genius doctor, believes that there's a connection between vitamin D, uh, the medicine that we take for MS patients. And so um, eventually my condition leveled off. Uh, eight years of scare turned into two or three years of kind of wondering, am I really okay? Uh, am I really not getting any worse? And then came the time I had to reinvent myself. So that's when I started writing. I'm now a writer. I've got three books out, working on some other ones now. And uh, I do interviews with guys like Jackson. Yeah, well, have a good day. That was everything, wasn't it? <laughs> good night, everybody. Have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll, we'll unpack a lot of that. And I want to kind of start at the, the very beginning. And that is that that first, I don't even, I don't, I guess it did turn into a little bit of a job, but what created that passion for for radio, it was... I guess doing a job in a church that no one else wanted, right? Talk a little bit about well, here, those early days. Here's the way this happened. You know, um, you know, I was a regular high school kid uh, living in my hometown of Canyon City, Colorado, which is about uh, 290 miles south of where I am right now. Uh, in 1972, my father, who was a um, Korean War veteran and had retired from the Navy after 20 years, he had a variety of different jobs after he retired. And one of them was being a news guy. Uh, and he did sales also at the only radio station in my hometown of Canyon City. Now, it was the only station in my hometown, but it's not the station the kids listened to. Uh, the radio station was playing Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, and we mm. wanted to hear the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Mm. So I, my dad came home one day and he said, listen, uh, my boss wants to know if you'll babysit for him. And I used to babysit my parents' friends' kids as a, as a high school kid to make money. So I just thought that he wanted me to go babysit his kids. So I went to the radio station under the thought that I was going to pick his kids up and then go babysit him. And at that meeting, the general manager told me he wanted me to babysit the radio station mm -hmm. on Sunday mornings between 7 and 10 in the morning because that's when they played back all the church services from the previous week. All the churches around town would record their services and the radio station would play them back from seven till 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. And nobody wanted that job. They needed just a kid, a high school kid. And my dad kind of got me into it. But, you know, there's just something about, you know, being in a radio station, kind of understanding what DJs were, because I was a radio listener. I loved DJs. I thought they were cool. And, uh, you know, so I'm sitting there playing these church services. But every hour I had to go on the radio and say, uh, I actually remember it. Uh, the station identification every hour 
was this is KRLN, Canyon City, Colorado, the station with the news reputation. And it was that one line when you when I heard myself on the on in my headphones for the first time doing the legal identification, I thought that was cool. Mm. And that's really what got me started was that simple station ID and uh, uh, that I got to do part time work there at the radio station for a while while I was in high school uh, to the chagrin of all my friends because they couldn't stand the radio station. And Mm. uh, but that's all that got me started. And that's all it took. I like it. And just the the one thing I, I pull from that with you keep saying Canyon City, that is not how I thought that was pronounced. It's not spelt like regular Canyon. It's got a what it's, is that? Is it a is it's called it, a tilde? That's a yeah. tilde. Yeah, uh, in, I thought it was like a in grammar. That's known as a tilde, and it's an enye in Spanish. Yeah, uh, in Spanish, that same tilde gives you an enye, and so it's canyon as opposed to canon city. Uh, yeah, but that's okay. Believe me, everybody gets that wrong. <laughs> I like <laughs> it. Oh, that's that's funny. I that yeah, and I like that. That's kind of where your your passion started. I talked to another person that it was a long time radio DJ. He actually left that and went into voiceover. I want to talk a little bit about leaving later, but same thing that he, his dad had gotten him involved. So I think that's kind of a, a cool thing that you both have that. I, I like too, that just, you know, it, it created that passion, but I want to kind of get beyond that because you did a lot since then. And then also right after that, you decided to go to to school for it as well. Talk a little bit about that. And then I guess leaving school early to to really pursue the passion? So obviously going to college was my next thought. Uh, Actually, when I was in high school, I was a high school trumpet player. And it was always my mother's dream that her son would go to music school and become a high school band teacher. So I went to to, uh, SCSC, it was Southern Colorado State College in Pueblo, Colorado. And I went there as a music major. But Remember, my senior year in high school, I had the taste of the radio bug. So I took broadcasting as my as my minor. Uh, But it wasn't long that the radio classes overtook the music classes. I stopped going to them because I was really having a good time in the radio broadcasting school. And I also, you know, thought I could be a DJ, a real one. So I went and I applied at one of the local top 40 radio stations. There are there were two at the time in Pueblo. And uh, I, I, I auditioned uh, for the number two radio station, number two top 40 station. Uh, and they hired me. Uh, but my name is Kim Curry. And believe me, I've taken a lot of grief in my life about being named Kim, especially in the 70s. There weren't that many men in America named Kim. Mm. Uh, so on the day that I got hired, I was in the production room uh, with the program director, the guy who hired me. And then the voiceover guy, the guy we're going to talk about in a little bit, maybe uh, the voiceover guy was doing the drops for the radio station. Uh, He was doing them for the morning show and for the afternoon show. Now, those drops are very consistent. You've heard them all. Uh, Gary Paxton plays all hit music, KKAM, Pueblo. You've heard those things, a zillion of them. But the program director didn't want to do Kim Curry. He wasn't going to put a Kim on the radio. So he looked over at a record that was on the on the side of the of a turntable and he looked at it and he said, "Okay, your name will be Gary Paxton." And he threw the record down. Well, the record was The Monster Mash by Bobby Boris Pickett, but that song was written by a guy by the name of Gary Paxton 
who later in life you'll know is the guy who married Tammy Faye Baker after she got divorced from Jim Baker. But never mind, I won't get into it. <laughs> so my first radio name was Gary Paxton. So that's how my, I went from Kim Curry at the original radio station in Canyon City, my hometown, nobody cared. And it was a very old style radio station to the top 40 station where they called me Gary Paxton. So I spent two and a half years there in college going to radio classes and practicing all the time so that my one day a week on the weekend, I could be as good as I possibly could on a top 40 radio station. And then what happens after a while when you're a radio DJ, all you want to do is get out there. You know, I spent two and a half years going to school. I practiced. I thought I was finally good enough to, to get a real radio job. So I sent tapes all across America. I got a couple of bites. Guys called me and had some interest, but didn't call me back. And then I got a call from Knoxville, Tennessee, a radio station known as 15Q called and offered me uh, my first full-time radio job. And uh, so as I'm driving across the country, Jackson, I remember this because it was distinct in my mind. I, I'm, I'm thinking I can't be Kim Curry on the radio. I don't want to be Gary Paxton. And I'm going to be on the radio at 10 o'clock at night. And it was the 1970s. Remember 1973, four, five. Uh, so I, I thought I'm going to be on the radio at 10 o'clock at night. So I'll call myself Night Smoke. So I'm driving across the country hearing all these other radio DJs as I'm driving out to my first full-time job. And I'm I'm thinking, I'm better than these guys. These guys aren't that good. And I'm listening to stations in Memphis, Oklahoma City. And, and so I'm thinking, I've got a real advantage here. I think I can do this in my first full-time job. And I'm going to call myself Night Smoke. So I drive up to the radio station and I walk up the porch and I open the door and there's a lady sitting at the receptionist desk and there's a big fat guy behind her with curly hair and a Hawaiian shirt on. And I put my hand out to the lady and I said, hello, ma'am, I'm your new nighttime disc jockey. I'm Night Smoke. And the guy says, well, if it isn't Kid Curry. And I said, I hate that name, Kid Curry. And the reason I hated it, because there was a TV show. I don't know if you know the movie Alien. I mean, uh, raindrops keep falling on my head. That was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah. Well, ABC Television did a TV show in the early seventies called Alias Smith and Jones, and it was a takeoff of the Butch Cassidy movie. Yeah. And they called their characters Hannibal Hayes and Kid Curry. Yeah. So, because my name was Kim Curry in high school. Uh, my friends made a joke all the time. Hey, but it's a kid curry. And I, so I hated that name. Yeah. And so when I, when he said, well, if it isn't kid curry, I said, I hate that name. And he says, well, I'm not going to sign your check. Uh. <laughs> he was the boss. Yeah. And I said, well, kid curry it is. <laughs> and little did I know that that was the smartest thing I could have ever done. I was very much a young voice guy. I didn't have... As you can tell now, it's not a deep voice. Back in the 70s, all the radio DJs had big, deep voices. Well, I didn't have one. I sounded like a kid. So that's why the guy said, well, we're going to call you Kid Curry. Well, that particular act, the Kid Curry Act, actually made me famous. From there, I went down to Miami only six months later and got hired off a tape that I had just sent to, again, you know, you, you become, I became I was very comfortable at my first full-time job. And I thought, well, gee, if I can do it here, I can do it other places. So I started sending out tapes across the country again. And I got a job offer from Miami, Florida. 
And uh, I went down there and um, I was only there for about, I don't know, a year before that radio station got fined and the boss got uh, fired because they had done an illegal radio contest years prior. And it's a very famous radio contest. If uh, if you've ever studied broadcasting, this is actually in the broadcasting study books. Uh, it was called the Find Greg Austin in the Bermuda Triangle case. Uh, the 96X, the radio station I went down there to work for, a couple of years earlier had had did this thing where they went in the newscast and they said that their DJ was lost out in the Bermuda Triangle. Well, they just did that as a joke. But people actually got in their boats and started heading out to the Bermuda Triangle to try to find this guy. Mm. So it was an illegal contest. It should have never been done. People were endangered. And eventually they shut that radio station off. And the FCC rarely does that. So I was I got there about the time that court case was hitting the courts. So about a year after I'm there, the boss gets fired. All the other DJs start leaving. And I'm thinking, I've got to find another job. So I start sending out tapes. Well, I didn't realize at the time that the competition, the guy on the other top 40 station, there are two, there were two, and actually those two stations are still there in one form or another. The two primary top 40 radio stations in Miami were Y100 and 96X. But Y100 at that time, was the first radio station in America to give away $50,000 cash prizes. And they did it over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So I, I never thought I'd work at Y100 because they were, the, they were the best top 40 radio station in America at the time on the FM dial. Uh, if you go back long enough, there was a time when FM was only a bunch of hippies smoking dope, playing playing you know album rock. Well, then eventually Top Forty that sig that, that format went onto FM radio, and the biggest contest in America at that time on FM between Top Forty stations was between Y100 and 96X. But I I didn't think I was good enough to be on Y100. So little did I know as my boss gets fired, all these other DJs start scattering around the country. I'm looking for a job. And then I get a call one night from the competition, the guy I was on the radio against at Y100. And he says, I'm leaving here. I'm going up to Boston. And Tanner, the program director, wants to hire you to take my place. Hmm. And so suddenly I had gone from 96X, which was, again, this was the biggest FM top 40 radio battle in America at the time. People were watching it like crazy. There were news stories all the time in trade magazines about this contest. And I went there on the number two station. And suddenly a year later, I'm on the number one station. I'm on the radio station giving away the $50,000 cash prizes. I'm on the radio station whose program director is best friends with KC of the Sunshine Band. And remember at that time, all those hits you think about now, Get Down Tonight, that's the way I like it. Boogie Shoes. All those songs were started out of Y100 because our program director and KC were best friends. Mm. And because of that connection, the Bee Gees were always in the radio station. Michael Jackson's mother would come to visit Bill Tanner. Uh, it was it was full of superstars. So it was very much a show business radio station. And Y100 at that time was absolutely the biggest education I could have gotten. Um, You know, to work for a guy like Jerry Clifton at 96X, who was also and still is a legend in the business, uh, to learn from him. And then a year later, to learn from the number one guy in Miami, 
uh, it was an education that solidified my career. Mm. Uh, Kid Curry, there is no other radio guy named Kid Curry. There never was. There's a whole bunch of guys out there named Bill Tanner and Robert Walker and Steve Martin, but there was only one Kid Curry, and it was me because mm. I was the guy who identified with the voice. It was the act nobody else could do. And uh, so it really, it was really a good thing for me to go to Miami. Uh, it was best thing that ever happened to me. And then years later, I became the program director of what was 96X that I went to work for. Remember, I told you they shut it off? Mm -hmm. Well, eventually, the FCC turned it back on. It was on the frequency 96.3 when I was there in the beginning. When I took over as program director, by then, it had come back on. They turned it back on and put it on the frequency 96.5. So I was the program director and actually worked a couple of times for, for Power 96 is what they call it now at frequency 96.5. You want so. to talk about some of the, the things that you, that you did when she became a program director. I think you did some, some groundbreaking things. And I also wonder too, you talked about just how amazing the, the Y100 was and that competition. Now you just went back to the other, the other radio station that had been off the air for a long time. So obviously it had lost probably a lot of its followers. Were you able to get back into that competition and, and be, uh, be much of a competition for Y100? Well, I can tell you that these names that I'm mentioning, Bill Tanner and Jerry Clifton, and we're talking top 40 rhythmic radio in Miami. Those two guys have basically controlled the market. When I was at Y100 in the very beginning, the first time I went to work for Bill Tanner. But by the time I came back to Miami, the FCC had turned power actually 96.5 back on. And Bill was now the program director at mm. Power 96. Mm. So I came back. I was at, I was at Y100 for a while, uh, the first time in the 70s. And then I wanted to go become a program director. So I went out to San Antonio, Texas, and tried to be a program director out there at a couple stations and failed miserably. By this time, Tanner had left Miami for a while and went to Washington, D.C. So he all of a sudden hires me to come to Washington, D.C. because he wanted to put on Y100 in Washington, D.C. Now, you can well imagine that the style of the guys, the long-haired hippies in Miami who had made Y100 so famous to pick us up and put us in Washington, D.C. Yeah, John Kluge, who at the time owned... Uh, it's it, it eventually became Fox, okay? So John Kluge is the guy who hired Bill and paid him like a million dollars to drop this radio station in Washington, D.C. because they believed they could take over the top 40 market in, in, in Washington, D.C. But you could, it's a different feel. I mean, the beach is what Y100 was based on mm -hmm. and politics is what Washington, D.C. is based on. And so we really never caught on very well in Miami. Uh, and eventually we all got dismissed and, and, uh, and, and we all ended up back in Miami eventually. But I want to tell you something that, that happened to me in Washington, D.C. that I tell you about my multiple sclerosis. You know, it didn't just appear in me. Uh, I had what they call exacerbations my whole life. I just didn't know what they were. When I was in San Antonio being a failed program director, uh, I thought I'd been bitten by fire ants one time because I got very sick. My arm curled up and my toes curled and I had this vision thing I couldn't see. And my I felt my brain was on fire. 
Uh, but I thought I just bitten by fire ants because I'm in Texas. I must have got bitten by a fire ant. It went away, but it was a week I was down. So then you fast forward to Washington, D.C., another maybe year, two, two years later. And this is just kind of weird. I, I, I'm going to try to set this whole thing up for you. Being the nighttime DJ Kid Curry, my job was to attract the high school and middle school audience for the radio station. That was me. I'm uh, so that was I did everything I could. I was in high school uh, pep rallies. I went to to education days. I uh, went to become student teachers. I did everything I could to win that audience. And at night on my radio show, in the last 10 minutes, I would do a segment called Bed Check, where I'd let kids just call in and say whatever they wanted to say. They could rip on a teacher. They could uh, call a student friend names. They could rip on their brother, their mother. They could say whatever they wanted to, and I would fire back at them. And then at the end of that particular feature, I would say, come get me, mother. I'm through. So I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm supposed to be winning the nighttime audience. But the nighttime audience is not a teenage audience. My bed check, which was designed for kids, be got taken over by the adults who wanted to talk politics. And it wasn't very fun. Mm. And I would be picking up the phone and there would be a, a comment about a political party. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to talk about high school kids. I get real mad about it. And then one night I picked up the phone and this guy says, hello, my name is Frank DeFramer. I'm over here at the White House. And the president was just in my office listening to your bed check. And he thinks you're funny. And I just went, ha, 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 ha. And I hung up because I thought it was a prank call. Mm. The next night, same thing. Hey, guess what? Mr. Reagan was just in my office. He says, hello. And I, ha, 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 and I just hung up. And I kept hanging up for about a week, maybe two weeks went by. Until one night he called and I stopped my show. Because uh, it was a recorded thing because I had to edit everything over. And so I stopped him and I said, hang on a second. Who are you? What is this bit? You keep telling me the president's in your office. Who is Frank DeFramer? He mm -hmm. says, well, my name is Frank and I'm the guy who takes care of all the frames in the White House. Someone has to do the maintenance on those big portraits that you see. And that's my job. I'm Frank DeFramer. And when I tell you that the president was in my office listening to your bed check, I was serious. Whoa. I thought, man, that is awesome. So years, a couple of years go by. I leave Washington, D.C., and now Tanner has gone back to, to Miami. I haven't yet gone back. I didn't necessarily want to leave the Northeast. I had just gotten up in Washington, D.C. I was enjoying the history. I wanted to stay in the area. So when Tanner went back to, to Miami, I went over to Baltimore, Maryland. I'm over there on B104, and I'm on the radio for maybe a year. My girlfriend at the time says, uh, my grandma's coming to visit from Texas. So grandma's over at the house, and we're having dinner. And the story about my bed check comes up, and Frank DeFramer, and she says, well, if you know somebody at the White House, you need to get us a tour. Oh. <laughs> so I go, and I make that call to the White House, and I'm going, is this guy real? <laughs> oh, here we go. So I'm hello, I need to speak to Frank DeFramer. <laughs> Lady says, oh, Frank, hang on a second. Puts me on hold. And I'm like, what? <laughs> there really is a Frank DeFramer because until then, I had no confirmation. Mm. And so he picks up the phone. He's a Frank. I said, Frank, it's Kid Curry. Frank went nuts. Kid, how you doing? What's going on? I haven't talked to you. Sorry you left because I was on Wash FM. Sorry you left Wash FM. Uh, I hear you're in Baltimore. I said, yeah, man, I'm still up here. I'm still in the area, but I've got a, a girlfriend's grandma wants a tour of the White House. Mm. Okay, I'll set you up. 
You just come on over whenever you're ready. Let me know when you're coming. And I'll tell all the guys in the Secret Service that you're coming. And they'll know you're coming. Just tell them you're with Frank and they'll get you up here. Okay. So I'm driving around the White House. Now, this is just after the Reagan assassination attempt. There is still no security changes around the White House. So I'm driving around looking at roads going into the White House. And I see one that looks to me goes right next right up to the side of the house. <laughs> so I start driving up to this place. And at that point, my life nearly changed forever. The Secret Service started coming at my car with guns, everything. They were running out of everywhere. And they're coming up on my car and I'm going, wait, wait. And I stopped the car. But at the time, remember I said my arm would curl up and my feet would curl up and I get this pain in my head. Mm. All of that happened as I'm stopping the car. Mm. And so as I try to get out to talk to the Secret Service to tell him I'm okay, I roll out of the car because I'm having a seizure, a MS seizure. And mm. I'm going, it's Kid Curry. I'm here for Frank DeFramers. I'm falling out of the car. And mm. they're like, hey, kid, what's up? And I was like, oh, my God. I thought I was going to get shot by the Secret Service at the White House. Mm. So that's just one example of what multiple sclerosis has done to me in my life. And I didn't even know what it was. And I can now tell you that when I got diagnosed in 2005, my doctor, Dr. Calagua in Miami, felt that she realized that MS is a stress-related disease. When you've got a radio show and you're Kid Curry and you're a pretty important radio DJ in America, I worked constantly on my show. It was always on my mind. I never turned it off. And then when you become the program director of the radio station, not only are you concerned about that show that you're on, but you're worried about everybody else's radio show. So there's an element of stress that is connected to multiple sclerosis. And what happened when I'm driving up to the White House and those guns are coming at me, suddenly stress hits me. I'm having a huge exacerbation and my muscles curl up and I roll out of the car. I didn't know what it was. They're telling me, hey, can we get you a wheelchair? I'm like, get the wheelchair for the old lady. I'll be okay. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but that was something that was happening that I didn't even know once again until that was what, 1986, maybe 85. Uh, and until 2005, I wasn't even diagnosed. So these things were happening to me as I was living my my life. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, eventually I made it back down to Miami. Yeah. And I, I think it's important kind of to, to note that, you know, you talked about how you thought it was fire ants or you thought it was this, or you thought it was that. It's really easy. And a lot of people do try to just kind of explain symptoms away. I mean, I have some, uh, you know, uh, my, my grandmother actually has MS. She was diagnosed in 1999 and she talked about how, you know, for 20 years before that, you know, there'd be times that she would just like get so tongue tied. She couldn't talk. She just thought like, you know, that she was just getting nervous. Like she didn't know what was going on. So she explained that away for so long until one time she literally just couldn't talk for long, a long period of time. And she had a brain scan. And she and she was diagnosed with with MS. So I think it's kind of uh, a, a big thing there when it comes to just knowing your body and, and realizing that you know when something you when you when something's wrong, don't try to explain it away because you know there, it, it would probably be beneficial to uh, to get things checked. So I think that's a, that's a huge thing for sure. Um, when I was younger, though, Jackson, when I was younger, I was like you know I was a tough guy. I'll be all right. I'll be all right. right. But by two thousand five. <laughs> My, I'm sorry to if this shocks people, but my third wife 
says to me, wait a minute, we got to get you fixed. We need to get you to the doctor. Actually, I was at home uh, here in Colorado in 2004, visiting my mother at the same time of that big tsunami that we'd never seen anything like that on television. Was, you could see areas get wiped out, people floating out in the ocean. And I was watching this tsunami coverage on television. And my mother starts looking at me. And she says, there's something wrong with you. Your face is messed up. I can see your eye is drooping. And I, I told her, I said, mom, I'm under stress. Uh, I've got the biggest radio station in Miami. Uh, I'm watching this tsunami thing. And what you're seeing is stress. And she said, no, there's really something wrong with you. And it was my mother who convinced my wife to get me into the doctor. Uh, mm -hmm. Because I don't know if I would have ever, I just would have kept going, well, you know, it's just something. But there did come a time in 2004 uh, that I these, these things that were happening to me did not stop. I couldn't walk straight. I'd walk down the hallways of my office and have to hold my hands out so I could go down the middle. Uh, and my staff was concerned and I was losing vision in my right eye. So it was time, <laughs> you know, so it, it took about a month, maybe six weeks for the, the test. Uh, testing for multiple sclerosis takes a long time. Uh, they stick you with needles and do electronic stimulation and, uh, uh, all sorts of uh, blood tests. And eventually I took the MRIs, which show the lesions in the brain. And then one of the things they also want to see is a certain enzyme in your, in your, in your uh, spine, uh, your spinal fluid, which was torturous for me because unfortunately uh, I didn't realize at the time because I was just being diagnosed and they're trying to figure this out. Uh, I didn't have much spinal fluid. How would I know? Until the doctor goes in, she says, I need and my actual doctor, Dr. Calagua, is going to go give me the spinal tap to get the uh, to collect the fluid. And she punches in and then stops and pulls out and says, I'm getting nothing. I'm going to get somebody else. So she mm -hmm. goes and gets another doctor. So it takes me about an hour to get over this one thing mm -hmm. in the first place. And then I got to get ready for the next one. And mm -hmm. so the doctor says, try this again, lean up. And he spikes, spikes me and they got nothing. And he's like, oh, I'm not getting anything. I don't know what's going on here. Then the my doctor says, well, we'll bring in the spinal tap specialist because apparently there is a guy like that. Mm. So they bring this guy in. And now I've already had two spinal taps. And now I'm going to endure my third spinal tap in one day. And he gets nothing. And then they're like, we've got to find this spinal fluid. So they put me actually under an x-ray machine to locate the spinal fluid. And then they... They found it that way. So in one day, I endured four spinal taps, took mm. about eight hours for the process. So it was, but again, that's, that was what they needed to have to get the diagnosis correct. So, yeah. All right. Well, I want to ask you too, you know, cause we, we've kind of jumped to, to the, the MS diagnosis and, yeah. and that is kind of what made you leave the radio world. Yeah. I want to ask you just a, I guess from a, a mental health perspective, what was it like first getting this diagnosis is a, is a major thing, a, a huge life event, but then also it kind of putting an abrupt into a career that was still, still booming. And then one that I I'm sure that you, that you enjoyed quite a bit. So what was that like? So as kid Curry, the DJ, and I said three wives, part of the problem, and I've been married now 22 years, so I'm good now, okay? <laughs> but in my younger radio DJ life, part of the problem being Kid Curry was the girls really liked Kid Curry. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so uh, people have always paid attention to this DJ. And I talk about him in the third person because he is. It's just, an, to me, it was an act. I was just really good at it. And so Kid Curry was the kind of guy people wanted to be around. And then when Kid Curry became the program director of Power 96, now we're talking Miami, Florida radio. Uh, it's like Hollywood in California, only it's in Miami. So being the program director of this very famous radio station and bringing it to heights that it had never seen before made me very famous. Everybody wanted to be next to Kid Curry. But you know what? When Kid Curry has to go to a crutch because Kid Curry can't walk straight, and then the doctor says, well, actually, it was a cane, the first one. Then I got into crutches. And then I ended up in a wheelchair. You know what you find out is people don't want to be next to Kid Curry. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was quite a mental situation that I can tell you that uh, took a long time for me to get over. Uh, I was a fairly famous, well-received person for my whole career. And suddenly, because of my disease, because of my body falling apart, nobody wanted to pay attention to me anymore. And it was very distressing. It took eight years or so as my condition was failing. uh, That beat me up. Along with my condition going down, I was mentally dealing with the fact that I'd gone from this career that I loved, that my dad got me started in. I was having huge success. I had been, uh, uh, I've been interviewing for jobs in Los Angeles at the time I got diagnosed. And this screeching halt thing was not very easy to deal with. And I can tell you that if not for my wife, my wonderful wife, uh, I would have had a real problem. But she finally convinced me to not be so mad about being in the wheelchair, Uh, you know, because I'm just angry that I can't do the things that I want to do. I can't empty the trash. Okay, Uh, I can't. I can't there. Well, you can imagine I'm in a wheelchair. There's a whole lot of damn things I can't do. Uh, now I am uh, the chef in my house and I do cook from my wheelchair. I prepare all my dishes. Uh, I've got a chair that lifts me up and down and I, I cook for my wife and myself and my daughter who lives next door to us in our, our apartment on the other side of the property. But it was a real, it was a real mental thing. And I can tell you that, that, that I don't know if it hadn't been for my wife, I don't know if I would have been able to mentally deal with it. But she kept encouraging me to realize that when you get better, you can go back to work. Now that we've stopped your degradation, your body's not being beat up anymore. Let's get you back to work. Hmm. But it had been about eight, 10 years. And a guy like um, radio is quick. Uh, the entertainment business is in and out. You're famous one day and not famous the next. Songs are hit one day and it's not a hit the next day. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that there's no way I could ever get back in the business. Um, But I wanted to tell my story. I wanted to tell my story. I wanted to write the history of the Kid Curry radio show, how it started, uh, what I went through, uh, the people that I met, the incredible artists who became good personal friends, uh, Cindy Lauper, Gene Simmons, um, I could go on and on, Casey of the Sunshine Band, Barry Gibb, the Gibb brothers, all these are my friends, uh, Clef Jean. As, as, and as my career continued, you know, remember I was playing in Casey the Sunshine Band in 1976. By the time I retired in 2005, I was playing Puff Daddy, Tupac, and all these other artists. So 
my genre, my mental state is to stay within 18 to 34 year old age group because mm. that's how I directed my radio stations. And it's still in my head. I still feel very, very young. I don't feel like a very old guy. So I wanted to tell my story. It's why I wrote my memoir, which I entitled Come Get Me, Mother, I'm Through, which was my tagline at the end of my, my feature. Um, and the, the it talks about the Kid Curry radio show, about a lot of the great things I got to do in the cities that I worked in. Uh, and then it talks about the multiple sclerosis diagnosis. And it talks specifically about how it costs to be disabled in America. Mm. Um, you know, I have a wheelchair that my insurance company gives me. It's a motorized wheelchair. It's on the second floor. I mean, it's on the main floor of my house right now. I'm on the third floor. In order for me to get from one floor to another, I have a $30,000 chairlift that I sit in, and it takes me from level to level. Each level has a wheelchair on it. Now, the only wheelchair that has been paid for is the first one, the one that the insurance company gave me. The other wheelchair downstairs on the first floor and up here on the third floor, and that stair lift that gets me from level to level, and the lift that it takes to get me out to my garage, and the other lift it takes to get me out to my backyard, probably in excess of $70,000, all paid for by me. If I didn't pay for it, I wouldn't leave my house. And there's a certain political party who's taken all of my tax breaks away. It used to be when you were disabled in America and you had to buy these things, you got some tax breaks, but they've taken all those away from us now. So it costs to be disabled in America. Um, there's no reason for that. It's only because of people who make a lot of money and they don't want to help guys like me. So it's pretty disturbing to me. And that's why it's probably, it's a pretty important part of the book. And it's probably the main reason why I wanted to write the book. Yeah, I wanted to talk about my career and everything. I want to talk about the MS diagnosis. But the reality is anybody could end up where I am at any time in their life. And I know people, you know people, who have had one day fine and the next day they're not. And we all end up in the same place, disabled, needing medical help, and paying out of our pockets for something we shouldn't have to pay for. And it is the worst medical system in the world because we're the ones that pay the highest costs and get nothing for it. So yeah, that's yeah. my personal opinion. And that's why I wrote the book. So Yeah. And I've had a several people that are, you know, disability advocates and they say exact thing you're saying. And then also kind of a, a further point, And I wonder exactly your, your thoughts with it is just, we have a, a huge, you know, accessibility problem too. It's kind of an afterthought a lot of times in, in most of the world. And, and a lot of things that you think are accessible are just, are just not. So I think that's a, a huge issue too. What, what, what do you feel about accessibility? Well, I, I live in a town um, that's been here for a hundred and some years. Uh, yeah. It still has a, an old town feel downtown. And there are many stores I can't get into. Yeah. Um, and that bothers me. Um, I can go through the back door. In fact, there are many restaurants here where I have to go through the kitchen just to get in mm. to sit down and have a meal. Mm -hmm. So I don't like it. Um, I get very distressed when I see people who don't have placards on their car uh, to, to have parking in handicap spots. Um, this is a real issue that needs to be cured in America, needs to be fixed because 
remember, the guys who are voting for us to try to get us some relief and give disabled people relief have the best health care on the planet, and they don't care. They don't care about us. So mm. it's very distressing. Um, I, I, the accessibility part, as a matter of fact, I, I had moved in before we lived on the ranch where I live now. We lived over in Loveland, Colorado, in a brand new development. And I had called the city at one point because there were no uh, there were no wheelchair drop offs. I would have had to go all the way around almost a quarter of a mile around the uh, sidewalks, cross the street down another sidewalk just to get to my my mailbox. And I called the city of Loveland. I said, I, I don't know if um, this is something you need to look at or what, but I would sure like some help. Well, the next day, they came out to start making uh, arrangements. They actually came and reconstructed the sidewalk uh, on the corner of my house so I could take my wheelchair across. They actually had to reconstruct over by the mailboxes because they had to bring the wheelchair accessibility on that side. So I complained to the city of Loveland about not having any accessibility. And they came the next day. And within a month and a half, it was done. So kudos to the city of Loveland, Colorado. It would be nice if every city could respond that way. But the but my city, named Loveland, uh, said that they're prepared for that. They leave that in their budget. Uh, so I really have to give them props. Uh, they leave things, if they have money in the budget to fix things like this, that's that's a good town. So I really like Loveland, Colorado. I don't live there now anymore. I'm out in Severance, about 11 miles away. But I, I'm still a big fan of Loveland. Yeah, no, absolutely. Kudos to, to Loveland. The last thing I want to say about this, you know, there because I've had a lot of people on it, you know, talking about disability advocacy and just in case people are listening, this is the only one that they've, they've checked out. I think another issue when it comes to this is, and it sounds like you know, you, you're fortunate and, and blessed not to necessarily have this issue, but the way that our, our laws are set up, um, at least from, from what I've heard, is really kind of if people want help and people want you know, to have you know, government assistance on having a caretaker, government assistance on a lot of things, kind of keeps people poor like you're not able to get that and still try to try to you know provide for yourself when it comes to a job it's it's kind of you either get help or you or you know you don't so i think that's kind of a, a huge issue too it really is and and you know fortunately you know i i i am fortunate that my wife has demanded since you know some relationships don't survive something like this mm-hmm. uh, when you're diagnosed with a chronic disease, sometimes partners run. My wife never stepped back. She has insisted that she does everything that she does for me so that I can live a normal life. Uh, I drive with hand controls. Uh, I have a wheelchair in my car. I have a wheelchair I'm sitting in now. I'm on the third floor. Remember the wheelchair on the first floor? She had to buy that. She's the one who's who, who I really depend on here because here, here's something that happened, Jack, because we haven't talked about it. I, I went from being the real, the real, <laughs> I was the guy in my house. Uh, I was the moneymaker. Uh, and it was fairly large because I was well taken care of. All my companies took very good care of me financially. And then suddenly, uh, if it weren't for the office manager in Miami, uh, who had me sign a long-term disability uh, form that I did not even sign, I don't know what I would have done to even have any income. Mm. 
but fortunately, I signed a long-term insurance policy. So when I resigned from my company and I moved out back home to Colorado when I was diagnosed with MS, because all I could think of was I got to go home. I want to be with my mom. My mom is still here. She's passed since then. But she was here in 2005. I felt if I needed some help, I could ask my high school friends. They still, a bunch of them still living in my hometown. So I, I, I resigned and then came back here to Colorado. So what's happened is, is my, so my wife and I brought all our money out here in 2005 and decided we would fix and flip houses. We, we bought a couple of homes and we repaired them and we sold them. But during that process, my wife didn't like the way the real estate companies were taking care of her. So she came home one day and says, you know what? I don't like these guys. I'm going to go get my license and I'm going to become a real estate uh, agent. A year later, she had her license. A year after that, she was setting records in the state of Colorado per capita in house sales in this town. She sold 128 houses in one year. So then that really got the attention of my wife's corporate office. She works for Keller Williams. And now my wife is an international uh, real estate coach with clients all around the world. And she talks to them. In fact, she's she works seven in the morning till five four days a week, 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. with a new client every 30 minutes mm. talking about how to make the real estate company they have a better place. So this whole thing that's happened to me has completely changed my wife. Uh, she is now the leader of the band. She is the breadwinner in my house. And we have really, I knew, you know, when I met her, she had was working for a financial institution. Prior to that, she was working in family law. I knew she was a smart woman, but when I married her, she basically was the lady who told me what time I got to get to this thing, where to go for this. All she was my she was my secretary almost, because Kid Curry was a very busy guy. But when I got diagnosed and they're all switched off, my wife became the leader. And I'm telling you, we've this has uh, been quite the road for the two of us. Uh, thinking for years that I was going to die because of the the way my condition was failing and then coming back from that and trying to find a new me at the same time while my wife is redesigning her life. And now, you know, like I said, I've become a horse rancher. I live on a big horse property out here in Colorado and we have horses in the barn and, and uh, it's, it's a pretty different life than I was living a few years ago. So, Certainly, but it's yeah. all because of my wife. And I I love to hear the that you sound like you guys have made a good team. It was kind of a tag team. Tag you're it, and she took off running. So I love to I love to hear that. And I want you now to kind of transition into into your books. You talked about the memoir already. You've got a few other books. One of them was a topic that I was going to ask you about, but it's a a large topic, so I don't know whether we can dive into it or not. But the other person I talked to that was you know 40 years in the radio business talked about the same thing. And how radio changed completely, you know, back in the 80s. And it was more more politics like you talked about. So I think one of your books has a little bit to do with that. But tell us a little bit about the, the three books that you have. Okay, here's here's the thing. My, my dad got me started in radio. I took off on my radio career. My dad stayed there in, in our hometown. Remember, it was one radio station and it was his. He loved it. The town loved that radio station. And then in 1987... President Ronald Reagan vetoed the Fairness in Broadcasting Act. Inside that act was a thing known as the Fairness Doctrine. 
Now, that was the rule that required equal time for contrasting points of view. In other words, if someone went on the radio in 1980, before 1987, and they lied, you as a citizen had the right to go to that radio or TV station and demand equal time to call that lie out or give disinformation and correct the disinformation. It was your legal right to do so. But in 1987, President Reagan thought, he said, that he believed that rule was was against the rights given in the First Amendment of free, the right of free speech. But what you really do when you take away the contrasting points of view comments, what you then do is you let lies perpetuate without comment and lies build up. And it actually gave Rush Limbaugh, uh, the very famous uh, radio guy, I remember when his show first started. I was a radio DJ, man. If I could have come up with something that would have made people listen to my radio show every day longer for more longer periods of time, I would have I would have loved that. That's what our radio DJ thing is. Well, Rush Limbaugh realized after this 1987 law was rescinded, he realized that if he came up with all these things, all these misinformation, people would start to want to listen to it and they would gather, gather, gather. So the more lies, the more disinformation, the more questions he brought up about things he just didn't like, the more audience he collected. And he did this without anybody stopping him and call and being able to call him out as a liar. Um, so President Reagan did this to us in 1987. Now, my dad stayed in my hometown. And I, like I said, I'm going around the country. I'm doing my radio show. I come home and my dad would say things like, well, they fired Al Madrill and they brought on some syndicated talk show and all they do is lie. And then I'd come back the next time. My dad said, well, they fired old Kafka. Oh, they brought on some syndicated show and all that guy does is lie. And so this thing that was happening to my hometown and to my dad's radio station sat in my head my whole life. It bothered me that my dad's radio station was kind of destroyed by the decision by Ronald Reagan. And it affected, my dad kept saying, it's affecting the town, Kim. Uh, I, I, everybody's believing this bullshit. And he, I, I think it's going to destroy our town. Mm. So my dad kept telling me this when I would come home, but it was just a story that sat in my head. So then I get diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. My father passes away. I'm living now in my hometown. My mom is still alive. And the whole point that my dad would say is people are, they're listening to these lies. That's all they're going to listen to. And that's all the radio station wants to do because they're making money. They don't care what the people think anymore. And they stopped doing the local newscast. They took off all the local guys on the radio. Remember, it was one radio station. So everybody knew everybody on the radio station until they all got fired and replaced with these syndicated people who flaunted the fact that there was no fairness doctrine. So now I'm living in my hometown. Nobody, my mom is not listening to the station anymore. They're not doing anything locally. And then a fire breaks out at the Royal Gorge. There's a, a, a tourist trap in my hometown in Canyon City. At the time, it was the world's tallest suspension bridge from the, from the floor of the Arkansas River to the very top of the bridge was well over a thousand feet, and it was the tallest divide. It was the, the 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 biggest divide of a bridge in the world. There's one in China now that's taller. But a fire breaks out at this place, 
And this fire is intense. The wind is blowing. It's a typical winter in, in, in Colorado. And the wind is blowing. The flames are going crazy. And the flames actually jumped over the canyon. And, and there was so much smoke coming in, it covered up the town. I knew what was going on because I was on social media. And I knew. But my mother called. And she's screaming. She says, how come the radio station isn't telling us what's going on? They're not saying anything. They've got these syndicated liars on. And where's that smoke coming from? Am I going to die? Where's the fire? Mm. And that kind of stuck in my head, too, because that's what happened. Everybody in town stopped listening unless uh, if you didn't if you didn't like the corruption on the radio, you weren't listening. You didn't care. So the radio station basically gave up on listeners like my mom. And it was more important for them to play these because they never interrupted their broadcasting while this fire was going on. They never said anything. And that's the whole point of a radio station, and especially in a small town. Give information. My mother was desperately trying to find out. So years go by, and it sits in my head as I'm writing my memoir, I'm telling the story of my MS and my uh, belief that it costs to be disabled in America. I get the book done, but I'm still in the writer's mode. I want to I wanna write some more. So I, I sat back, and one day, and I thought about this story. I thought, wait a minute. What if I wrote this story about what happened to a small American town and its only radio station? after Ronald Reagan rescinded the Fairness Doctrine in 1987. And I basically told the story of what happened, that everybody that was local was on the radio and the town loved it. All those guys went away. They started broadcasting the syndicated stuff that my mom didn't like. Nobody that, if you, if the radio station only was concerned about those who liked that kind of radio and that kind of talk, didn't care about my mom. A fire breaks out. She tunes in to try to find out what's going on. And these guys are so into their syndicated broadcast, they're not telling anybody about the disaster that's happening in front of them. So that's the story that I wrote. And I sent the book off to a company called Tail Flick. Tail Flick goes through, they read the story, and they look at its viability into maybe making it a TV show or a movie. And the Tail Flick people wrote me back got very in-depth in the story, and they said, you know, you've got a really good line here. This is a good story, but we need more character development. As a matter of fact, I'm going to hold the, the different stories up. Here's the thickness of The Death of Fairness, the book that I'm talking about, and here's the thickness of the second story. So mm. I, what I did was when they told me they, I needed a deeper story, I needed more character development, I redid the story, and I wrote it in a YA form, a young adult form, because I believe if anybody's going to be able to fix America, it's going to be kids who are between 18 to 34 years old who finally realize they have the voting power to get whatever they want if they would just get out and vote. And what I believe everybody wants is truth. So my second book on that topic is Bonnie's Law, The Return to Fairness, Little Bonnie realizes the depths of Mr. Reagan's mistake and eventually ends up in as a senator in her state and uh, tries to pass a new fairness doctrine to try to bring truth and trust back to America. And it, it fails by one vote because the other party's in charge and it makes her want to go become president. So she files, in, the, in fact, the last page is her filing to become president 
to run for the office of president so she can bring back the fairness doctrine. I really believe in truth and trust. I really don't believe that Ronald Reagan knew what he was doing. I don't believe he would want the division in America that we have today. I don't think he did it for the reasons he said he did it. Because as you research hard enough, he said he told everybody, this is antagonistic to the rights given in the First Amendment. But if you research hard enough, you'll find out that the major broadcasting companies of the day were complaining that giving equal time was taking away from their bottom line because there were so many liars and so many people that they that were that were giving out disinformation that they had to keep giving all this equal time and it was affecting their bottom line those people got to Ronald Reagan and said listen this is a monetary situation for corporations we need to get rid of this rule and so he did for them saying that it was antagonistic to the rights given in the First Amendment. But what you truthfully did was you took away my right to call a liar a liar. You took away my right to give correct information after disinformation. So that's how this thing ended up. And I cannot believe that Mr. Reagan wanted that to happen. Yeah, well, I, I do my best when in, in this podcast just to to present the, the the people I'm speaking with and, and let people kind of make decisions. I don't, I don't give a lot of my own opinion, but what I'll say is, um, you know, the question for you is, is do you think that in, in the world that we, we have now, um, because I had someone on, Oh goodness, a couple months ago who actually retired from the white house press corps because of this, pretty much this exact issue about, you know, division, truth, fairness, being able to call out things when it's not necessarily accurate. He, he retired in 2018. So I'll, I'll let, I'll let you kind of figure out exactly what, what his issues were and, and the, the problems he was having as a media person at that time. Um, I wonder, I wonder if you think this is something that with the division we have now is something that we, we ever could, could truly solve. I hope so. Well, here's, here's the truth. After they finally had to come up with a new regulation, and they came up with Section 230. Section 230, it simply does one thing. It takes away the responsibility of the internet. They are not held responsible for content. Internet, what, that, what Section 230 says is the entity is not responsible for the content. The entity is not responsible for the content. Now, that's Section 230. Could you change that? Through legislation, you absolutely could. You could change that in a second. Make the entities responsible for the misinformation. And you know what would happen? All the lies would disappear because they don't want to give up their money. If you brought back and forced them to give equal time, the liars would disappear because they don't want to give in to the money. So, you know, I'm, and no one wants to take away anybody's right to speak. All I want to do is have the right to be able to call out disinformation and lies when they are. And that's why Section 230 is the new devil. And yes, you could change it because it's simple legislation. In fact, that's what my friend Bonnie here in this book does. She figures out the legislation and, and gets it all the way to a 50-50 vote, but it was beaten by the vice president. So uh, there is a way to do this. It's very simple. 
It's not hard. But what you can do is you can only get young people involved to try to change it because the older people are getting money from lobbyists. And if as soon as, and by the way, I believe that it's important to give both sides. But there is certainly one side in this issue, one political side that has taken advantage of this fact that there is no fairness doctrine. And every time you bring up the possibility of the return of the fairness doctrine, and it does come up every two or three years, they squelch it. The other party that doesn't want it squelches it because they've had the advantage because of it. Now, how do you change that? You get young people to realize Get young people to read the book, realize, you know what? You can change this. It's legislation. It's all it is. So you get a bunch of young people, young Gen Zers or whatever the case may be, who are serious about running the country and uh, serious about trying to pull America back from a very serious brink because you don't know how this is going to end. I don't know how this is going to end. This is, this, is, this is pretty desperate in our country right now. And it will take legislation to get it done. Yeah, no, I think that's a a good a good kind of kind of stopping point. There's just so much that we could talk about. I don't think that we could, you know, I, I don't think we can truly do your entire story justice in just an hour. But I want you to tell people how they can find you, how they can find these books if they do want to to hear a lot more about uh, Kim Curry, and then also, you know, just about this the fairness doctrine and the book that you've the two books you've written around it. Jackson, I want to thank you for having me here. Um, I do a lot of these interviews and this was a very comfortable interview. You were very well prepared. Thank you. Um, I'm available at krcurry.com. That's my website. Uh, My book, Bonnie's Law, The Return to Fairness is featured there because it was an Amazon number one bestseller. Uh, So you can find that out. You can find out all the information about my memoir, um, I've got other blogs up there. As a matter of fact, Jackson, when you're done with this and you decide to publish yours, I will put it on my website too, if you'd like. Um, cause I promote other people's stuff when I do these, uh, when I do these things, but krcurry.com. Uh, I'm at krcurry, the author on Facebook and Instagram. Um, I try to stay away from social media, but I'm not very good at it. So <laughs> I gotcha. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Jackson. My pleasure too. So that was Kim Curry. What a guy. What an amazing conversation. Learned so much from him. One thing in editing this that I learned is, man, what a great radio voice. I listen to myself and think, oh my gosh, I sound... I sound nothing compared to, uh, to, to Kid Curry and, uh, that, you know, that crisp, clear, smooth radio voice. But you're stuck with me every week in, in the voice that I do have. Luckily, I always get to talk to an amazing, interesting person and, uh, and they, uh, they do most of the talking. So you don't got to hear this, but I, uh, I learned so much this week. Uh, I, you know, between his career in radio, his, your struggles in MS and where he is now with it, learning about the um, world of navigating our system, our, our laws and our accessibility issues, navigating just his own personal um, changes in life when it comes to being that breadwinner to transitioning to his wife doing that, his transition into writing books that it seemed pretty amazing as well. Uh, the talk about the fairness doctrine. This is just a, an awesome, awesome conversation. I, I urge you to go check out those books. 
If you do want to check them out, the links to his website are in the show notes. Any other links I can find will be there uh, for him as well. Uh, but man, I, I really, really enjoyed talking to, uh, to Kim Curry. Hope you enjoyed it as well. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate you. Please uh, go leave a five-star review on Spotify and on Apple. Leave a written review on Apple if you haven't already. If you've listened a million times and you haven't done that, this is another reminder to do that. Uh, go follow us on Instagram as well, Not In Help Podcast, on Facebook, Not In Help with Jackson Huff, jacksonhuff.com. A lot of places to check us out. A lot of amazing guests in the past. More than 100 amazing guests in the past. More than 100, hopefully, to come. So I uh, really appreciate you following along. Hope to see you next week. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not In A Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.